This interview was recorded on July 2nd, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Nigel Bolton. Based in the UK, a little bit south of Manchester, Nigel is an author and popular speaker who is working to create the best Kubernetes and cloud learning resources in the world. You can find his courses on Pluralsight, Udemy, and on a Cloud Guru, and of course his YouTube channel, where he posts videos and hosts shows like Kubernetes This Month and the weekly Kubernetes Moment, hashtag Kubernetes Moment. You can follow him on Twitter at Nigel Poulton and check out his website at nigelpoulton.com. And please note that, of course, we will include links to everything I've just mentioned in the transcription of this episode on our website at leanpub.com. Nigel is the author of the LeanPub books, Docker Deep Dive, Zero to Docker in a Single Book, and the Kubernetes book. In this interview, we're going to talk about Nigel's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you, Nigel, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Uh, it's absolute pleasure. Thanks. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in technology. Yeah, so I was born um, in 1978, and I lived in the northeast of England in quite... Um, should be careful what I say here, actually, in case anybody from the area is listening. I don't mean this in a, like a demeaning way at all, but in, in quite a deprived area. Um, so we didn't have a lot when I was growing up. So I think in some way, right, um, because we didn't have a lot of things at home... Um, I used to dream of things and I would thumb through like we used to have um, catalogs back in the day. And, you know, as a child, you'd look at toys and things that you couldn't afford or whatever, but that you really wanted. Um, but I think from a young age, I had a very similar experience with um, technology. So I kind of got into Star Trek, the original series that used to show on TV in the UK Um and just fell in love with the whole idea of like exploring space and having all this technology, communication devices, phases, and um, all that kind of stuff, which really stuck with me through my teenage years. And a story that I tell quite a bit, actually. So if anybody that's listening has heard it, I do apologize. Um, but when I was about 16 or 17, and I, was, I had my own computer by then, um, and was learning to tinker with it and program it, um, I started an evening class, um, like after school, I think it was a seven o'clock start or something like that at a local college learning to program C. And it was on a Wednesday night, which happened to be the same evening that Star Trek The Next Generation aired on BBC Two. And that would start at six and it would finish at about quarter to seven. And then I would quickly leave and run off to college to go and program or learn to program C. But I would use that Star Trek The Next Generation episode almost, if you will, to pump me up for night school to go and learn with a computer because there would be like, you know, Geordie LaForge and Commander Data and people speaking, you know, just talking to a computer and fixing engineering problems and exploring the galaxy and stuff. And I would get so pumped watching it. I would then go and have this like dusty old 386 PC in a like a, a pretty grim classroom at a local college um, where I would learn to program the computer. And um, so I think for me, like from a super early age, I dreamt of the, I, I want to say I dreamt of the future, right? Where computers would be absolutely amazing. Um, and I feel very privileged in quite a lot of ways, to be honest, that um, although we're not exploring the stars, well, certainly I'm not personally at the moment. Um, I do think in a lot of ways, like what we can accomplish and do with computers and phones and apps and 
automated cars and things like that, or um, self-driving cars and things has almost surpassed what my dreams were in a way. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing sharing that story. That's that's just amazing. Um, uh, you just reminded me of, of actually a lot of different things. Uh, but in particular, I think it was Star Trek Four, where um, they're on Earth in the nineteen eighties. Um, oh yeah, and uh, Scotty is introduced to a Mac, and of course, you talk to a computer. You don't type yeah. into it. So he picks up the mouse. That's right. And he talks into it and says, "Hello, computer." Um, yeah. And of course, we can do that now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we yeah. totally can do that now. And we've been able to do that for a while. And it is, it is actually really interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm actually a little bit older than you. Uh, and um, to think sometimes about the things we were presented with as fiction that are now fact uh, is a really good, to put it in kind of clinical terms, like exercise to do, to remind ourselves of where we are now. Um, one of the things that actually comes up a lot on this podcast, because so many LeanPub authors are in, in technology and are programmers, is um, uh, what was under what circumstances were you given your first computer? So the the oldest person I think we've interviewed for this podcast was a man named Jerry Weinberg, who's unfortunately passed. But he was actually the first computer that he ever worked with. He was that he was from the times when yeah, yeah, oh, like wow. he was a computer. Um, yeah, and that was his job. And so yeah. uh, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what your first computer was. And yeah, I think you mentioned it already. But like, what, did your parents introduce it into your household for yeah. work, or did they give it to you as a toy? Right. So that actually wasn't my first computer. That was actually the first computer that was, I guess, mine. And um, the first computer we had in our house. Now, I know this isn't going out as video, um, but you can maybe see this, Len, um, is a Sinclair ZX Spectrum oh, 48K. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Um, now, it was a British designed computer and it was, to be honest, quite shocking, even in, you know, even in its own time. Of course, everything when you look back on it, it looks kind of shocking. Um, but that was my first introduction to a computer. And we had a couple of games with it, which were, again, well, actually, they were very playable, if I'm quite honest. But of course, the graphics and the sound and, you know, it, it's absolutely nothing like it is today. But it came with a manual. And I remember learning to program the computer, not that I really understood a great deal, but I actually enjoyed being able to type in commands and I remember being able to change the color of the screen, to change the color of the border of the screen, to write text to the screen. And for some reason, um, like I was the only one in a household of two brothers and a sister um, that actually thought that that was cool, which tells me that there was something innate within me that kind of drew me to technology. So that was the first computer we had in our household. But I put down, um, excuse me, I put down as my first ever computer or the one that kind of changed my life. I got when I was about either 16 or 17 years old that my dad bought for me. Um, now, my dad was one of these, um, he's passed away a few years ago now, but he was one of these people that came from a different era, okay, where, um, you know, he, would, he, he didn't have hardly any money at all, but what money he had, he was very loath to spend and he would hoard money and he would kind of hide it under the rug and behind the toilet and things like that. Till he got to the point where he could afford a PC for me because he, he could see that I had a passion in computers. And back in the day, like buying a PC was actually quite an expensive thing to do. So despite the fact that I came from like a very, from, from a household where we had very little, and um, my dad was really good in spotting that I had 
a passion and potentially a talent for something and investing in that. So I remember my first ever PC, right, was um, what we used to refer to back in the day as an IBM compatible. Um, it was a 386SX33 with half a megabyte of RAM and a 40 megabyte hard drive. And of course, it had one of those huge monitors. Well, I say huge, it was probably 13 inches. But if you had to pick it up, you know, it was like bend at the knees, keep your back straight. Otherwise, you're going to get an injury. One of the, you know, those huge old things. Um, and the guy that sold it to us was a local businessman um, who became a good friend of the family, actually. But he told me when... I was stood in his um, sort of workshop one day as he was installing Windows 3.1 from about 20 floppy disks. And he told me that in my lifetime, I would never, ever, ever, ever fill a 40 megabyte hard drive. And look where we are today. Hey, I mean, that's barely a photograph on some cameras, right? That's so fascinating. Yeah, for people uh, listening who uh, aren't as old as me and Nigel, a 40 megabyte hard drive at the time he's describing was absolutely huge, like really, really massive. Um, and uh, there, you know, there was, there was probably no kind of like, you probably had no internet connection or anything like oh, that. No. So there was no downloading. So everything you, every program you acquired was on a, some form of disc and you would put it on your computer and you would run the disc. It sounds so funny to describe this kind of thing, but you would run the disk and that's how you would run the program. And you only sort of had to save things kinds of kind of incidentally uh, yeah. on, on your computer. It's and a different so, world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first, the first computer I bought for myself was a little bit later than that, but it had a 40 megabyte hard drive. And I thought mm-hmm. like exactly 40 megabytes. And I thought like, you know, I'll never, I'll never be able to fill that up. Uh, but what a, what a world we live in now. Um, and oh, yeah. so actually very specifically, so you, you and just, to, we'll, we'll move on in a moment, but um, uh, I really like these, these artifacts of time and then people's experience. So uh, where did we, you, you talked about typing in programs into the computer. Where did you get the programs from? Right. Yeah. So originally with the ZX spectrum that I had with 48 K of memory in it, um, that it came with a manual that was wire bound. I remember that. Um, but later on, when I had a, we did have a Commodore 64, then an Atari ST, and then a Commodore Amiga. Um, and for those, um, we, with those, we did play a lot more games on them. But I still was curious about programming. So we would go to a local bookstore um, in the UK, WH Smith, for anybody who lives in the UK and knows <laughs> the company. Oh, yeah, you used to live in the UK, of course. Yeah. Um, and I would buy magazines that would then have program listings and things in there that you would I'd, you know, have it open and I'd be typing in and, and just learning on the go like that. Um, but when it really kicked off for me was when I did that programming C course um, when I was about 16 and then I went to college full-time. Now, college in the UK um, is, is not college in the US. So this is like sort of um, pre-university. Um, and I learned to program a programming language, which I'm almost certain isn't under active development anymore, but is probably kicking around in the corners of the internet. But Fox Pro, which Microsoft eventually bought, um, sort of a database-focused programming language, but I fell in love with that. And I, I mean, I would miss college to stay at home and program, and I would miss going to the pub with friends and stuff from college so I could stay home and program. And I think that was the point in my life where I realized, you know what, Nigel, you are a proper geek. And uh, you're not going to be a footballer, unfortunately, because, <laughs> of course, I would have loved that. Um, let's go with the next best thing and, and try and sort of um, chisel out a career 
in something that you're passionate about. So um, here I am today, and I will say um, super, super fortunate or blessed or, or however you want to look at that. Um, but I would say a day doesn't go by, that's hand on heart, where I don't think I must be one of the luckiest people out there to be getting up and doing something that I'm passionate about every day and living, I think, Len, almost in a golden age of technology. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to, uh, thank you for sharing that and, and, and for uh, the positivity. That's very much appreciated. Um, uh, we'll get to where you are right now in just a couple of minutes, but before oh, yeah. there, um, one thing that comes up often on this podcast is uh, sometimes I'm interviewing people who did full computer science degree, like four-year computer science, U.S.-style university degrees, uh, and, and are so glad that they did that. It changed their lives. Other people I interview regret it. Other people I interview... Uh, who are programmers and very successful uh, and happy with their lives uh, didn't go to university and do computer science degrees and are happy with that. And other people didn't and regret it. Uh, if you were starting out right now in like 2020 uh, and you had a desire to have a career in technology and things involving computers, uh, would you advise your alternate self to go to university and do a computer science degree or to do things uh, through a, a college or just on your own? Yeah. So I have three daughters, the oldest of which is 14 at the moment. So things like this are very much on my mind. And I will say, right, that I do think the world, certainly in the UK, is a very different place now to when I was at university. Um, I think when I started university, and we can maybe talk about this in a second, but I dropped out of university to take a job. Um, but it was much easier to get started, I feel, in the workplace without a university degree back then. Um, now, I've been independently consulting and writing books and making video courses for over five years now. But in my last role before that, um, I was responsible for hiring for three different technology teams that I was like team leader stroke manager of. And at that company, it was increasingly difficult even to be able to interview somebody that didn't have a university degree. So we would like... We were boots on the ground IT in that organization. And all we cared about was getting somebody that had the skills. We kind of wanted somebody that was passionate about technology and we needed somebody that would fit in with the team. But we were central London based. We were paying quite a lot of money for our roles. So we got a lot of people would submit their resumes. Um, and the HR department within the organization would just bin resumes if for people that didn't have um, a related technology degree irrespective of whether they may have been the perfect person for the team we just would never get to find out because we never got to speak to them so to answer your question i would say to anybody these days and i say this to my own children that um while a degree might not be um the be and i don't think it is the be all and end all i think if you do not have one and you're trying to enter the typical workplace, you know, where you're not an entrepreneur or something, starting something yourself, if you are looking for employment, steady employment through, a, you know, another organization, if you don't have a degree, you're putting yourself at an instant disadvantage. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. I've, I've heard that um, uh, from, from, you know, a couple of people that I've interviewed from uh, who were working for big organizations, like, I mean, I, you know, I won't name them, but um, that, that, yeah, if, if there's an HR kind of filter, um, not having a university degree uh, can be an impediment unless uh, you've got some very demonstrable experience. You know, you've, yeah. you've started a company, you've, you've 
created a bunch of open source software or something like that. Uh, without without that, uh, you can actually get get blocked. Um, and so so you so you you dropped out of university. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So I did start a computer science degree at university. Um, but to earn myself some money, I took a job in a local call center that had an on-site IT department. And um, I became friendly with those guys in the IT department. Well, mainly the guys that would come out and run cables and you know, fix PCs that wouldn't, re- that wouldn't boot and all that kind of stuff. Um, and because I'd programmed in Fox Pro and I'd done a bit of C before and you know, I'd had a computer and I'd tinkered around quite a lot, I, I was able to strike up conversations with those guys um, to the point where I was offered a job. Um, starting at the very bottom, of course, you know, resetting passwords and changing backup tapes on a daily basis and, and things like that. But I decided that the opportunities within that organization, if I took that job, um, were what I was looking for at the end of my degree anyway. Now, I don't necessarily recommend it to everybody. It worked for me. It doesn't mean it worked for anybody else. Um, but the timing was quite fortunate for me in that not long after that, we had the um, dot-com bust. And my brother-in-law, who was the same age as me and stayed on at university and got his degree, found it extremely hard to find um, a job in technology for at least four or five years after that. Now, he's doing really well now, don't get me wrong. Um, but I ended up getting a five-year head start on him because um, I'd always looked at it. And I would hope other people would look at it in a similar way, right? That even if you have a university degree, when you land in an organization, I really feel passionately that you should start at the bottom and learn how everything works and work your way up rather than just coming in somewhere in the middle and not having a real appreciation for for everything that maybe you've skipped, if that makes sense. Um, so I, I always looked that at the end of my degree, I would get a job and I would start somewhere at the bottom and work my way up. And um, partway, th- in fact, just towards the end of the first year of my degree, I was offered a job like that in an organization that looked to me, and I don't get me wrong, I, I thought long and hard about it, um, but the organization looked like it had plenty of places for me to grow and there would be opportunities to branch out and, and do other things. So I bit the bullet and quit university and took a job. Unfortunately, or, or however you look at it, um, I've not looked back. It's been great. Yeah, it's really interesting. You mentioned the dot-com bust. Um, uh, again, for those of our listeners who aren't uh, old, oh, yeah. like, like me and Nigel, um, there, you know, there have been a number of, of these, these uh, setbacks uh, in industry and, uh, I, mean, I, mean, I guess, capitalism in, in our lifetimes. Um, and one of the big ones was around the turn of the millennium when there had been this huge boom, a positive thing, uh, with the uh, emergence of the World Wide Web. Uh, and a lot of people were told, if you want a secure uh, job and profession where you can be highly paid, go become a computer programmer and get into tech. Uh, and then there was this huge crash, uh, which we won't go into because it would be, take another episode to, to talk about the whole thing. But a lot of people ended up, you know, having made this decision, what am I going to do with my life on the grounds of security and, and income and then and not what they were actually going to be doing uh, and then ended up um, you know in a doldrum uh, which was very unfortunate uh, and I'm glad to hear you made it through that uh, you ended up so just uh, I, I sort of scrolled through your LinkedIn profile a little bit uh, you ended up at Barclays for a while uh, yeah. and, and I want to talk about that so a lot of people's experience working you know doing programming and, and tech is with you know startups and 
you know, big tech companies and stuff like that. And, and I should, I should mention, I've actually interviewed Ian Mile for this on this podcast in the past, who was the chief software architect for Barclays for a while. Um, but uh, what was it like working for a giant bank? Yeah. So my role at the bank, so um, I'm, I come very much now from more of an infrastructure operations background. So although I did code and develop early on in my career, I became very much more of a, like a networking and then a storage and then a Linux guy um, before I got into containers. So when I was at Barclays, um, I was fortunate enough to be on what was called the storage strategy team. So there were three of us in the team that were effectively responsible for looking at potential new storage-related technologies to bring into the bank. Um, and I think, like, without saying too much and without, you know, uh, of course I don't speak on behalf of the bank at all and things have changed potentially a lot since I was there. But it was an organization like most banks um, that invest heavily in technology because technology is fundamentally a part of their business. No tech, no business, no bank, right? Um, so they put good money in to building good infrastructure. Um, so we were, I mean, I ended up flying all around the world looking at new technologies, testing them. We had a proof of concept lab. We would have vendors, different storage-related vendors, and technology vendors would fly us all over the world to show us their new technology. So it was like it was a super interesting role from that perspective. Um, but I will say that so we mainly focused on the retail bank side of the business. And retail banks are, while they invest heavily in technology because it's such a core part of their business, um, they are the proverbial huge oil tanker trying to turn when it comes to actually implementing and deploying new technologies. So in one respect, we were looking at very interesting and cool new technologies that we felt would be very good for the bank, but the bank had this like super cautious approach to everything. And it's a bank, right? It looks after people's money. And so it should have an approach like that, right? No, otherwise me and the two other guys on the team would probably have brought the business down. Um, but we got to look at some very cool technologies um, rubbing up against some very frustrating policies and procedures and lead times to, to doing things. So I think for me, I really enjoyed it in a lot of respects. Um, but I mean, I work for myself now, so it's literally me and my brother and my wife does our finances. Um, but after I was at Barclays, I didn't ever work for another large organization after that. I did work in finance again, but it was more hedge funds and smaller investment banks. And I think that I preferred those kind of environments where it was easier to get things done. You had very small teams and you could just go over and talk to somebody and get something done. Whereas at larger organizations, and it wasn't just Barclays that I worked at, I worked at other large banks. To get things done sometimes, the, the hoops that you had to jump through and the time it would take was really frustrating. So um, after Barclays, it was smaller companies for me until I got as small as I could go, and it was just me. And now that's built up to myself, my brother, and my wife kind of, of running everything now. I've got a couple of questions to ask you about that transition uh, and, and, uh, the, and the risk involved in that and what it was like. Uh, but I can't help myself. Uh, I once, um, in addition to having interviewed the chief software architect for, for Barclays at one point, um, I interviewed the chief, someone who had been the chief software architect for Allianz. Oh, yeah. A guy named Gregor Hopa, and he he has this concept. And we were talking a little bit before we, before we started recording this interview. Interview, we were talking about Star Trek, and 
he he viewed himself as being kind of like Jordy LaForge. Oh yeah. Uh, and and the the metaphor he likes to use is he had an elevator to the to the top. Um and so he knew the engineering and he knew the engineers, but he also had access to the to the high level of the company. Um and uh he he viewed his job as like trying his hardest to bring the information that he could to the attention of the captain who was steering the ship yeah who didn't necessarily under, who respected engineering but didn't necessarily under, and I'm not talking about Picard who understood everything about the ship and the story but in, in, in the stories but of course but but you know the 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 metaphor is that like there you are like you you've got all this knowledge you've got all this understanding of how everything works but you're not the decider and it can be very frustrating to have all that knowledge and not be in a position where you can decide and where like there's incredible uh well i mean things at stake it's important sometimes that ships are hard to steer or, or take a long time to steer but it can be very frustrating to be in a position where you know where the direct you, you believe you know what direction it ought to go technologically but getting the people who decide where it goes to agree can be very hard so i have a quick story if you don't mind then len that's, sure um, really good example of that so I won't say any of the organizations that were involved, um, but it was one of these, I don't know, sort of big enterprise organizations that were slow to turn. Um, and we were bringing in a relatively, well, a quite a very new technology actually from a startup. And it was a very good technology all across the board. We loved it. We were passionate. We were behind it. We were excited to, to deploy it. Um, and our existing um, vendors in that space that were losing a bit of the account or a bit of the footprint on site were very much against it. And we took the approach that, you know, we do our testing and we proof of concept things. Um, and we're not mugs, right? We've done this for a long time. We know what we're doing. And of course, we thought, yes, that vendor's potentially losing out some of their share of the environment. Of course, they're going to say bad things. Um, you know, and they were very much, look, this is this is too new. It's not enterprise ready. It's not battle hard and all of that kind of stuff. Well, we went ahead and we deployed the technology. And somewhere later down the line, not too far down the line, we had an engineer in on site on a production system um, changing a, ca a faulty cable that was part of the back-end wiring. Um, but it was all highly available with multiple redundant cables. So it was done under change control and it was done during business hours. Um, because it was deemed that, you know, the risk was not that great. Um, as he was moving his hands around inside, around the cables at the back of that piece of equipment, um, he knocked the big red power switch off. Oh, my. And, yeah, and, and the system went down. It was a storage system. If I remember right, data was lost, which is the worst-case scenario. And we probably had backups that we recovered from. It was a very long time ago for me now. Um, so details were a little bit vague. But what it turned out was, and the other vendor really loved this, was that as much as had gone into making this startup technology as highly available as possible, and all of the testing we did, it showed that it was, when we compared it with the longer standing vendor, their power button was recessed with a plastic cover covering it to avoid just the, such a scenario as that. And it's one of those things that, you know, we, and that would have happened, I think, in fact, I have no doubt it would have happened a lot more if a lot of these organizations hadn't put the brakes on 
the likes of me and, and the people that were in the teams that I were in saying, this is good. This is enterprise. Great. This is great. This is the future. Um, and, and as a result of that, of course, all future models of that then had a fix put in place. And, and we were unfortunately the ones that learned the hard way. But it is so true that so many of these organizations, while it is frustrating for people like maybe me and you, um, there is wisdom behind that sort of let's take things very steadily. Yeah, it's funny, actually. I, uh, I, I mean, at LeanPub, I'm sort of on the technology side, but I used to be an investment banker in London um, on the on the investment banking side of things. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we were uh, very conservative about technology. I mean, it was it was fun. It was an interesting. It was funny. It's like you want the latest and greatest, uh, but you you can go to jail if you screw up. Yeah, yeah. So you absolutely want everything to work as well. And screw up can mean things like data being leaked, um, data getting out. Uh, it, you know, and, and yeah, so you, you, you know, you, yeah, when, 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 when billions of dollars are on the line and so is your freedom, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you get, you get yeah. very conservative about it. But, um, yeah. uh, but, but at the same time, if you're in it, it's extremely competitive. Uh, and so you want the latest and greatest. And so there are all these, all these tensions, but I know, I mean, I, I, you know, my, my heart beat faster when you talked about that button being, oh yeah and losing data. I mean, that's, that's terrible stuff. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of things being at stake, um, so you had these high flying jobs at investment banks and hedge funds and stuff like that. And then you decided to go independent uh, and to teach. Uh, so what prompted that decision? And uh, what was it like at the beginning? Yeah, so my wife prompted it, but we'll get to that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so what happened was, so I was kind of making a little bit of a name for myself on the internet as a storage expert. So I was, I, I was one of the early people running a technology blog, um, which got me visibility in the wider sort of, I want to call it social media, but we didn't call it social media back then. But I, I began to get a name for myself. Um, and most of the big technology vendors like NetApp and EMC and Hitachi and HP and all those people ended up starting to fly me around the world to their different shows. They would take me to their labs. You know, I got flown out to Japan with a small team to go and see the research lab at Hitachi, which was a very privileged thing. So I got to this point where I was making a little bit of a name for myself. um, And I always had this sort of passion where I wanted to write a book. So early in my career, um, excuse me, (laughs) sorry, early in my career, um, Mark Manassi's book, when, um, mas- uh, what was it? I think it was called Mastering Windows Server 2000 or something like that, was a monumental work in my career. Um, I still have a copy of the book now, took it on my honeymoon, I read it at the pool, I read it at the beach, all that kind of stuff. It was a very important book for me, helped me kind of really propel my career on. And I always thought from that point, at some time later in my career, I'd love to write a book to give back. Well, anyway, so as I was um, becoming moderately well-known in the storage world, at least, via my blog, um, I was approached by Cybex or Wiley Cybex, the publishing company, to say, look, we'd love you to write a book on data storage networking for us. So I did that. Um, While I was working at a hedge fund in London, the hardest year of my life, it took me 11 months to write the book, um, almost cost me... I don't want to be flippant about this. I am slightly, but I don't mean any disrespect to anybody here. Um, But, you know, it was almost the end of me and my family and my relationship and stuff. I was so stressed doing it. 
Um, but coming towards the end of writing that book, when I only had a few chapters left, um, a company called Train Signal approached me and said, hey, um, we're looking for somebody that's good at storage to create some video training um, courses for us on exactly the same topics that I'd written the book on. And I was having a really difficult year. Um, and I had a word with my wife and said, look, I think I've done all the hard work for the book. Um, assuming there are no non-compete issues here, um, I think I'd quite like to do this. So I went back to Wiley Cybex and they said, we don't compete with video courses, so go ahead as long as it doesn't make the book delivery date late. Um, so I finished off the book while at the same time I started creating some video courses for this company called Train Signal. Finished the video courses. Train Signal was acquired by a company called Plural Sight. Um, and they said, look, we hold this annual um, convention over in the States for all of our authors, and we'd love to pay for you to fly over, come and talk to us, um, and just see what we're all about. So I said, yeah, okay, go on, we'll do that. So they flew me over to the States. I went to this whole convention thing with a bunch of plural site and train signal video trainers. And at the end of it, they sat me down and they said, um, and again, this is rough, right, from memory, but um, number one, I think they like the accent. Um, number two, they said, you seem to have taken really well to this um, video training um, sort of approach to things because um, I try and make things conversational and fun and, and, and entertaining and have a laugh while we're doing it. And they basically said, we'd like anything else that you feel that you've got enough expertise in to make more video courses for us. So I flew home and mentioned it to my wife. Now, bear in mind, wind back to the beginning of the call and you say, I live in the north of England. I was commuting um, three and a half to four hours a day to London and back at this hedge fund. And I had been using the time to work on my video courses while I was on the train and finished my book and stuff, but it was a really tough year. And my wife said, so right, you will be able to make video courses and work from home and never have to go to London and stuff again. And I said, mm, kind of sounds like that. And she said, well, Nigel, I think we're going to do that. <laughs> so I said, all right, let's give that a bit of a go. Um, and I will say that um, I, I'm in a good position now, um, but early on, it was very, very difficult. So the way, generally speaking, the way that video courses work is um, you get paid a royalty for how many hours are watched. Now, I love the model, right? Because if I make a rubbish video course or if I'm lazy and I just do one a year or something, then, then I'm not rewarded for it. But I, if I put in effort and I make something great, that when people click play, they don't want to click stop. And I create enough of these, I will be rewarded, you know, commensurate with how, how much effort I've put in. And I, I really like that model. But early on, right, when I didn't have another income and I only had one course in the library and I was working on my next course, my next course, um, I, I don't mind saying that Pluralsight were very good to me and gave me advanced payments and things like that um, so that I didn't lose my house. Um, because it, it got quite difficult at times. I mean, it, it, there was a point um, when we were selling the children's toys at what we call a car boot sale over here in the, in the UK, where people go and set up a table in town and sell just little things to, for next to no money. Um, so in the very early days, you know, we're out there selling the kids toys to try and get by. Um, a very, very humbling experience, but something I think that um that that changes your perspective on life and, and um 
your work ethic and things like that. Now I'm super fortunate that I've got quite a lot of video courses out there. Um, royalty rates are much lower now than they used to be, but I've got enough out there that I have a work-life balance where I'm doing something that I love, like I mentioned before. I'm around at home, so I do the school run every day. I go to all of the sports days and stuff at school. Um, I don't get paid contractor rates like I did in London necessarily, um, but, but the balance is totally different. Um, so I, I'm absolutely loving it, Len, but I will say I'm going to caveat it with um, I do spend all of my time now creating and keeping up to date my video courses and my books. And I am a little bit worried that there will come a point potentially where I am. And I mean, no disrespect to anybody here, right? But when I was um, working for the companies and we would have accounts with Gartner and people like that and the Gartner people who hadn't touched a production system in the trenches for 10, 20 years would try and tell me what was best for me. I kind of resented it. And I worry whether there will be a point where I become the video trainer and the book author that hasn't touched a real-world production system for 20 years. I'm not quite there yet, obviously. Um, but I will be like trying to preach to somebody that just knows the world way better than me. You might not know the technology better than me, but my understanding of how it's applied in the real world might start, start to, um, I don't know, fade for want of a better term. Does, does that make sense to you? Oh, uh, well, first of all, thank you very much for sharing that, that wonderful story uh, and for the ups and sharing the ups and downs as well. Um, uh, so many uh, Lean Pub authors are people who've made the decision at some point to go independent and face, face these challenges and these, these hard times and then these up times and things like that. And I think it's really, really great to, to hear the story. Um, it definitely makes sense to me what you're saying. Um, this is a, this sort of thing that like, people who are really smart and really know what they're doing and go into the teaching side of things. I think this, this is an, not exactly an anxiety, but like a concern that they all have. Uh, and it's something that they face, right? You know, I mean, it's the old, the old uh, challenge to the teacher is why are you teaching it instead of doing it? Um, yeah. uh, but of course teaching, you, you wouldn't know what you're doing if you, you guy, if you hadn't, if you hadn't been taught or learned from somebody like, like your, your great story about this book that changed your life. You know, if, if, if someone hadn't taught you, it's taken the time to t think about how to teach and to do the teaching, then you probably wouldn't know what you know now in the first place. So there's always this, this interplay, but it, it, it definitely makes 100% sense to me. Um, uh, before we move on to uh, talking about um, uh, what you, what you have been teaching uh, and the technologies about that. And the next part of the interview where we talk about your books, I just wanted to do two things. One was a little anecdote. So you mentioned the accent. Um, when I was uh, researching this interview, I listened to a podcast you did, I think back in February where you, you brought up the fact that um, maybe plural site was partly uh, attracted to the accent um, yeah. uh, that just brought up an old memory of mine from back in the day when I was doing a master's in English and at the university of Saskatchewan in the middle of Canada, uh, right. we had a student come in in my year from Cornwall oh. and, uh, <laughs> <You> are. <laughs> and, uh, everybody fawned over his sophisticated English accent. <laughs> Which to him was like, where he's like, where I come from, this is not. There's considered nothing sophisticated. to be sophisticated about a Cornish accent. <laughs> yeah, so we would call them pirates, probably. He's a pirate. 
<laughs> but yeah, it's funny to the to the to the sort of North American. I mean, to generalize to I the North American so. ear, all English accents sound like BBC accents. Of course. Uh, but yeah. once you've once you've been there for a while, you can start to tell. You know, if someone's you know from Newcastle or someone's from Liverpool or someone's yeah. from from where. And in fact, the neighborhood in London, even uh, if you if you get. Uh, oh, of course, yeah, yeah, precise enough. Uh, but the other, so I said, said there were two things I wanted to talk about before we went on to the next part of the interview, where we talk about technology in your books, uh, is the pandemic. So one of the pleasures of this podcast is I get to get to interview people from all over the world uh, about how they've been affected. You know, I've interviewed like an Argentinian programmer who made the last flight for foreigners to Poland with his girlfriend. Uh, you know, people in you know Denver and Seattle and. Uh, Austin and, um, you know, you know, but that's all just the United States from lots of different countries. Um, how has the, and, and, and in particular, um, people who do conference speaking and, and things like that and consulting and how they've been affected, how has the pandemic affected you? Yeah. So, I mean, like I was saying before, I work from home full time anyway. So from my perspective, I won't say not a lot has changed, but not as much as has changed for people who didn't always work from home prior to the pandemic. Um, I think from a working from home perspective, the biggest change for me has been having the children around a lot more. Um, we had a, an incident just earlier on on this call where the, the kids were outside making quite a bit of noise. Um, so it has been not as much of a change for me from a working practices perspective, though my productivity has taken a dip. Um, because it's just more difficult to record audio and things like that when the kids are around playing and doing what they do, fighting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, however, we have done a lot more live streams. So whereas we used to do um, face-to-face training gigs at events like DockerCon and CubeCon and things like that, um, we're doing a lot more live stream-based events Um, I don't enjoy them as much. I mean, I try and be as interactive as possible and get people to ask questions via the Q&A widgets and things and, and, you know, make them feel as present as is possible on something like that. But it's not the same as being in front of a room of 50 or 100 people. And then when you're done, they come up, we're talking and interacting like that. Um, So we are doing a lot more live streams. Um, Outside of our main technology business, as a family, we do now have one or two other businesses. Um, which have taken various different beatings. Just to step away from technology very quickly, if you don't mind, um, we have um, a half share in what is effectively an environmentally friendly water business. So we own a spring water, half of a spring water company. It's a startup, really. Um, And we're all about no single-use plastics, um, zero waste. So we have um, re- all of our water still and sparkling is in reusable glass bottles that we deliver to your door. We collect them, we um, wash them and reuse them. And of course, we're no longer able to deliver to hotels or restaurants or anything like that while they've been closed. Um, but we are delivering to end users. Um, so that, that side of one of our businesses has taken a big hit, but we're super passionate about this kind of environmental aspect of the business. In fact, it was why we got into it. So we're really hoping that things can get back to normal as much as possible. Hopefully we would like to improve some things. I don't mean in the business, I just mean in society in general, maybe drive a bit less and fly a bit less. Um, But we really feel that this business has the potential to make a 
an impact on the environment and in people's lives that we super hope it doesn't fold. Now, that's not a sob story in any way at all, Len. I'm just saying like, you know, I'm sure you've had a lot of technology conversations or conversations with people about how technology businesses and working life has changed. But just from one other side of us there that like, you know, we have other small businesses as well, which I won't go into that have kind of taken similar hits and things. So it's been like, it's, it's just been all change in almost everything that we do. The only thing that hasn't changed for me is the fact that I'm sat in this office 24, seven, seven days a week. Um, yeah. yeah. No, no, thank you very much for sharing that. I think I actually think it's, it's very important for people to, for people to share, to talk about um, the different ways it's affecting them. Um, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's affecting all of us in lots of different ways that having the children at home and I don't have kids myself, but this is something I've heard from a lot of different people. Uh, schooling children has become a thing that everybody talks about as well. Uh, having, having productivity, feeling like your productivity is going down, uh, because of, because of all of that is really important. Um, but, but also, yes, I mean, people's, people's, they may have a primary occupation, but they may have had a secondary sort of form of income that's been affected by it as well. Um, I remember interviewing um, Kyle Simpson for this podcast and he did a lot of um, in-person consulting. And when I interviewed him, uh, he not only talked about how that had already, this was a couple of months ago, this had already taken a huge hit, but he'd been planning his 40th birthday uh, for a long time. And it meant a lot to him. And, you know, and he was, he was similarly apologetic. You know, I know, I know this, I mean, there are people literally dying, but at the same time, you know, there are these, dimensions of our lives that have been affected and things that we've lost, uh, you know, that aren't coming back. Uh, and I do think it is important to, to talk about and, and, and I think everybody, everybody's on the same page about that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, shifting gears (laughs) to the next part of the interview. Um, so, uh, when you did make this leap to being independent, there was a particular technology, which was Docker, uh, that you, that you were, uh, writing about and doing videos about and talking about. Uh, and uh, then, I mean, we, we could talk about that, but there's so much else we could talk about as well. But you, eventually you moved on to uh, uh, writing and teaching about something called Kubernetes, which you mentioned we, uh, has already come up on the podcast. I was wondering, on the episode, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about it. I, I sometimes sort of spring this on people, but like, and, and sometimes they push back. But like, if you were talking to someone who didn't know anything about computers, and you had to explain what Kubernetes was, uh, what would you say to them? Yeah, so actually, I don't need to avoid that question. I do I have that conversation quite a lot. So I address it in my book and several of my video courses, actually. Um, just take a sporting analogy, okay? A football team. It can be American football or it can be soccer. It doesn't matter, right? But that team is made up of lots of individuals, And each of those individuals has their own unique set of attributes and what they bring to the team. So if I'll I'll take soccer because I'm more comfortable with it, right? But I'll probably call it football. Yeah, please go ahead. (laughs) Um, But obviously the goalkeeper is very different to a striker. Um, Like the quarterback is different to a defensive guard. If such a thing exists, it it sounds like it does to me. Um, But then, look, I'll go with American football as well. A wide receiver is very different to a running back. Okay, like a defender is different to a midfielder and a a winger in football. Um, But they need somebody or something that brings them together, has them playing as a team against a plan, but that can then also react and adapt to changes. 
And in a sporting analogy, that's a coach, right? And she or he comes along and takes all of those different individuals and assigns them a position on the field and a job and a role um, and puts together an overall um, tactic or plan of attack for the game, for a particular match or game, yeah? Um, And they're responsible for implementing it and making sure that all of these different individuals actually do what they're supposed to do. But then if, like, let's say the circumstances in the game change and you're behind and you need, you know, the clock is ticking and you need an extra goal or a score or a a try or touchdown or whatever it is, um, they will adapt the playing staff. They may take people off and replace them with other people. They may um, say, we'll have less people playing in defense and we'll push forward and we'll take more risks. Maybe somebody gets an injury and they replace that injured person. Well, Kubernetes does that role of the coach for modern, and I'm going to throw a couple of buzzwords out here, and I apologize for doing that. I could just call them modern applications, right? But Kubernetes does that for modern cloud-native microservices applications, which is basically just an application that instead of being one huge large binary that does everything, um, like a, a big computer program might have done the web front end and the persistent data store and the back end and all the authentication and logging and reporting, Whereas now in a modern application, we break out all of those different pieces so that, you know, there might be a couple of developers responsible for the reporting system and they can develop that and deploy it and patch it and scale it independently of the other components of the overall application. So what we end up with modern applications is lots of different things, a web front end, a persistent data store on the back end, an authentication system, um, some middleware, lots of different moving parts but they have to talk to each other and pull together and form, I guess, a useful application that um, provides a useful experience for an end user. And Kubernetes does all of that. So it plans what all of the different components do, how they communicate, how they talk, whether we need to scale the front end up to cope with demand, whether we need to scale it back. If a node dies or if a part of the application crashes is responsible for restarting it is also responsible for performing things like buzzwords again i apologize but updates we would call them zero downtime rolling updates right um you just you, you compare a modern application with all those different individual moving parts to a sports team with individuals with different roles sports team has a coach comes in and sorts it all out kubernetes comes in and sorts out that modern application And that's the elevator pitch as long as the building is about 500 stories tall and the elevator ride is long. Thank you very much for sharing that. That's a really great analogy Um, to, to, uh, to make it, I guess, to sort of like to shift from, you know, sports to kind of something else that people might be familiar with. Let's take an application like Microsoft Word. Um, I've got an iMac Pro and uh, like a $6,000 computer. And when I turn on Microsoft Word, uh, I get a spinning beach ball and I can't, I can't run. I, I can't, I can't actually uh, have a, a document that's more than a hundred pages without getting slowed down. And one of the reasons <laughs> is that um, uh, it's this giant program that does everything internally. Right. So like it does, it has a mail merge feature where, you know, I can sort of like tell, I can, uh, I can give it a bunch of ad physical addresses, like street addresses street addresses so it can uh, kind of like put out uh print out um hundreds of letters this is like a very old old thing but it's i I imagine it's still there in microsoft word but but you know it can make tables it can make um uh tables of contents it can do 
captions under images and stuff like that. And I think that, so, so this, I'm just bringing it up because it's a program that I think a lot of people are familiar with and they're also familiar with it being slow because everything is happening in one service rather than many services. And perhaps an analogy that people might understand on the computing side of things is that like, imagine if instead of having one program like Microsoft Word with all these things happening and being managed within it, you actually had a bunch of different services. And then Kubernetes would be the thing that kind of picks out the service that needs to be used for what needs to be used now, uh, yeah. instead of having everything running all the time. Yeah, for sure. So I just had a horrifying moment that I thought you were going to ask me if I knew how to fix that problem with Word. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, don't use Word. Uh, <laughs> we don't like to be mean about other people's products, but uh, don't use Word. Um, but anyway, I just thought I thought that would be a, an analogy that people would get. Sure, yeah. uh, and so what's the, uh, I know that I'll link to the uh, a recent video you did, I think just a few days ago on YouTube a live stream about the current state of affairs with Kubernetes, but what is this, the state of the nation right now? Um, so Kubernetes has a lot of hype in the whole ecosystem. So it's, it's very much like what VMware used to be like in the early days where all of the major vendors want to have a VMware story. All the major vendors, HP, Dell, NetApp, all of them want to have a Kubernetes story now um, and want to be seen on stage with Kubernetes. So it's, and it's being sold as like, it's the, it's the answer to all software problems out there. Um, but then on the other side, it's her, it can be horrifically complex. Um, so I would, I always try and say that the truth of the matter is somewhere in the middle. So we've had Kubernetes for about five years now. So obviously quite a lot of the core components there, um, a pretty stable and a, a pretty simple, well, I mean, you have to be able to write YAML files and know a bit of command line stuff. Don't get me wrong. It's not like super simple, um, but it's way simpler than it used to be. So it's not horrifically complex anymore, but it also doesn't solve everything. And a lot of the things like it's growing all the time and a lot of the newer things that are sort of building or, or growing the feature set are newer and greener and are more complex so um, I, I don't know. It, it isn't, in some respects, it's not for everybody because of the complexity. Like if you're a small team or a small company and you don't have a lot of engineering time or talent to invest in learning Kubernetes to be able to um, leverage its power and what it brings, then it's probably not for you. And you might want to go with, I don't know, Docker Swarm or or maybe one of the um, maybe your cloud that you use has a similar service that's not Kubernetes-based that's simpler to use um, versus I think more and more, though, going forward, because all of the vendors are behind it, it's looking like it's going to be a VMware in that when I say that, right, I mean that if you don't get on board with it at some point, you will find that you've been left behind, both as an individual in your own personal career, right? But then potentially your team within your organization or even your organization in general. So if it's not for you at the moment, while it's hard and you go and you use another technology, I would recommend to people still keep an eye on Kubernetes um, as it gets simpler and, you know, people build tooling around it that abstracts a lot of the complexity and just makes it easier to use. Um, because I do think at some point, well, this is difficult for me to say, right, but I think 
a lot of companies will find that they do want it eventually. And I find as well, Len, right, that there tends to be within an organization or within an organization's culture, right, um, if an organization doesn't have a culture of adapting to change in their own product set, but also in the technology that supports their business, if you don't have one eye on the future at least, there's a good chance your company will not be in at least as strong a position as it is now in the next 10 years. And it might not even be here in the next 10 years. So I always try and encourage people like from an organizational perspective, like don't be one of those companies that got blindsided by a new product and thought that they didn't have to adapt to it. Um, you know, on your main product side, but also on the technology side, keep an eye on what's coming and Kubernetes very much is front and center it's got a very strong ecosystem. It's marching forward like a juggernaut, very much like VMware was. And I do feel that if you don't get on board at some point, you may regret it. Um, and it's all about that balance of making sure that you get on it at the right point. Because, of course, within organizations now, engineering time and resources are being squeezed more than ever. Um, I don't know if that made sense or if I was oh, rambling. Or oh, no, 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 no. That totally makes sense. And I think it was totally coherent, actually. And it gives me an opportunity to segue into the next part of the interview where we, where we talk about your um, experience as an author. So you talk about, you know, people don't want to be left behind. Things are changing all the time. You've got a book uh, about something that's changing all the time, uh, the Kubernetes book. Uh, and uh, how do you manage? I mean, I know, I know you do it by, by updating the book. Yeah. But what, what's your sort of cadence for updating the book that you've, that you've um, uh, hit upon? Yeah, so I will say, I'll start this by saying that writing a book is both a very challenging and time-consuming thing to do. You'll know this yourself. Um, but on the flip side, can also be a very rewarding thing to do. So I don't try and frighten people off. Um, I do feel it's very rewarding. But I would love nothing more as an author of two books on two technologies that change relatively quickly, especially Kubernetes, I would love to be able to write a book and put it on the shelf on Amazon, on LeanPub, all those different places and have that book be valid for five years. Like it used to be with that Mastering Windows Server 2000 book, right? But that is not the world that we live in anymore. And I feel very much like a book on a topic such as Kubernetes, um, if it's like more than a year or 18 months old, certainly two years old, it's potentially almost dangerous because things have changed so much. And the, um, the return on investment that anybody that buys that book is massively diminished. And I wouldn't want to have my name against something where people are buying it and spending their hard-earned money on it and saying, well, half the stuff that you talk about has changed since then. So with the Kubernetes book, um, we try and update it three or four times a year. Um, now, we want to make at least one of those changes where we're adding more content. So maybe something new has come along and has got to a point where I feel it's stable enough to put into a written book. Um, but then the some of the other updates may just be me going through the entire book. And, and every update that I do, I do this, by the way. I go through the entire book, I reread every word, and I go through every example and I um, run them against the very latest upstream version of Kubernetes so that I know if you're on the bleeding edge right now, um, what you're reading in my book or on my video courses as well, because I try the same there. It's a little bit more difficult. Um, 
that it will work on the latest editions. So the Kubernetes book, I try and update it three, hopefully four times a year. Um, my Docker deep dive book, I'm currently on a one-year update release cadence just because Docker is a lot more stable now. Um, but I, I find that, and, and I don't really know how the book publishing industry really likes this model when it comes to ISBNs and things like that and changing content of books and potentially adding content. Um, but I will say, if you don't mind me saying, that like from a Lean Pub perspective, the process that I have to go through, because I'm not a big Microsoft Word fan either, um, I write in Markdown in Visual Studio Code, um, and it, the, the back-end platform at LeanPub makes it very easy for me to write updates and push them to the platform and get them to existing readers. And, and again, of course, I sound like a shell for the platform here, and I don't mean to. Um, but of course, then anybody that's previously bought either of my books automatically gets the updates free of charge so that they don't have to go and repurchase it again or anything like that. So as much as it is challenging to keep it up to date, it feels like a rat race at times. Um, the technologies and the platforms are out there now that make, like, that, that make it much more simple, right? For me as an author, like my data storage networking book via an established publishing company, um, it would not be possible to do such a thing via the old way, if you will. Yeah, thank you much for sharing that. I mean, uh, you know, as far as shilling goes, um, uh, you know, this is the exact reason that LeanPub exists <laughs> is, to, is to allow people to write books that they can update uh, particularly uh, so that they can keep up to date with the evolving technologies that they're about. Um, and it's one of the reasons, I mean, you could use it in progress prefacing for all kinds of reasons, but like having books that are up to date with respect to evolving technologies is one of the reasons that having the ability to keep your books up to date is one of the reasons that LeanPub is so popular with particularly with people who write about evolving technologies. So, oh, yeah. you know, you're sort of like, that's the classic, classic lean pub use case. Um, uh, and, and so, uh, just before we go on to talk a little bit more about, about writing. Um, so of course you do a lot of video production, uh, and creation as well. And books and videos are very different things. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your thinking about the difference between books and videos, both um, instructional books and videos, both from the creation side and from the consumption side, how you think yeah. about that. Yeah. So a quick story then, when I wrote my data storage networking book, um, I had several changes that were mandated on me um, because the publishing company, um, probably rightly so in some respects, was concerned that some of the things I was saying wouldn't come across very well in different cultures and things like that. Um, so one of them, um, I was talking about a technology called fiber channel over ethernet and the ethernet that it used is not like the typical ethernet. It was like a much, I won't say improved. It was a much changed ethernet that was lossless and all kinds of different things. And I made the comment in the book that it wasn't your grandmother's ethernet. Um, and they were concerned from two angles on that, that some people wouldn't understand what I meant by that, which is, a, I think, is a fair shout. But they were also worried that I would offend certain cultures who respected um, elderly members of the family, potentially more than we do in the Western world. Um, so I, I took that change on board. But another one was, um, I forget what I was actually talking about, but I was saying that, that a certain practice in data storage was so important it was practically the law 
and I mean no disrespect to, to anybody in, in the US <laughs> when I say this, right, because these are not my words. But the publisher came back and said, we need you to take that out because we feel that some people that buy the book in the US may actually think that it actually is the law to do that. And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me, right? It's a tongue-in-cheek remark. Now, it's very difficult to put that across in written word, whereas when I'm talking on a video and you can, you can hear the way I'm saying things and I can laugh about it, you know, you know, doing it this way, it's practically the law, right? You get what I'm saying about that. I can do that in video form, and it's much more difficult to do that in, in written word. So I find that when I make video training courses, I can be a lot more personable. I can be a lot more relaxed. Um, I can be flippant at times. I can make jokes. Um, I can also augment it with animations and things like that, which is super useful. Um, but then on the downside, it is much more difficult to keep a video course up to date than it is a book that's published via LeanPub or something. Because, um, in fact, I actually find, so if I have like a, a let's call it a 10-minute video clip, and I need to change, let's call it just two sentences in that clip, it's easier for me to, to rewrite the whole thing and just re-record the whole 10 minutes than it is for me to try and splice in two sentences. Nothing else might have changed in there other than those two sentences, but I have to be able to get the audio at exactly the same pitch, and I have to have my voice sound exactly the same. I have to time it with the animation on the video, which will skew everything out. So it's much harder... Like, I prefer video courses, I will say that, right, because I can have a laugh and it's fun and I feel like I can, you know, like I'm having a, a chat with somebody at the bar and it can be very informal. Um, but updating them is super hard compared to changing the sentence in the middle of a paragraph on a book, right? So uh, don't get me wrong, I love them both, um, but they are very different beasts. Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that. And the 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 uh, the uh, anecdotes are really um, quite quite striking and informative. Like particularly, I mentioned for people who've had this experience themselves or who are thinking of getting into the content creation world on their own. Um, uh, yeah, the the notorious kind of like uh, contextless nature of writing uh, compared to kind of in person interaction uh, is fraught, right? It's yeah. it's funny. It's funny because there's because there's kind of less. There's more. Um, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, you can do things if you're in a video, there's pitch and tone and body language and, and also the kind of in the moment nature, even though something's recorded oh, yeah. and planned, there's a bit of an in the moment kind of feature of it that whereas with writing, it's like, no, you wrote that, you know, <laughs> you committed yeah. to that, you reread it, you edited it, maybe someone else looked at it and, you know, it's, and anyway, like, I mean, of course, videos the video recordings are real as well, obviously, and, and but and and commit represent commitments. But there is something that we all know. Everyone's had this experience of where you write something in an email or a text, and someone gets the wrong message from it because oh yeah, you know. And uh, but but anyway, yeah, it, it's very different. It's actually it's interesting. I've talked to a few people. Uh, I mean, it, both on the podcast, but also just like interacting with so many content creators through LeanPub who talk about how you know. In a way, it's much easier to update a section of a book than it is to update a section of a video. Uh, 
but and then the, you know sort of like you know it can take if you, especially if you've got high production value it can take hours and hours and hours can do, to do a video but it is true that you know rather you you kind of it's easier it's easier to reshoot a whole bit oh yeah than it is to reshoot a part of a bit uh so for anyone listening who's been into the, or thinking of getting into this like you're not wasting your time or or making a mistake if you reshoot a whole segment as it no. were it's incredibly rewarding but it is incredibly hard work as well like um I, I would tell somebody that if I am putting out a three-hour video course, that is between four and easily six months sometimes of hard, hard graft. Because, I, I mean, other people are different, but I do everything myself. All the planning, all the testing, all the demos, all of the audio editing, all of the video editing, post-production, the lot, just because I'm sort of super anal if i can say that um, <laughs> yeah. when it comes to quality like i only want my name against something that i feel is absolutely amazing other people might disagree like don't get me wrong um but i put everything heart and soul into it um which i think makes it a little bit more rewarding when the final product is out there and people are thanking me for it but don't underestimate the amount of work that goes into it wow honestly yeah, I forget. I forget who it was um, uh, that I was interviewing, but who said that you know, for every for every hour of video content that he produces, he probably puts in twenty hours of work or something like that. Oh, easily for me. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's 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 hard. And, and and for anyone who's done it, they know exactly what we're talking about. I mean, one little flub, uh, and it, you know, you might have to start over. Yeah. Um, and and so in all the planning in the world. Uh, you know, can't necessarily protect you against uh, the, the tiniest weakness in your plan. Um, Do you know, the thing for me, Len, as well, is because books were really important to me early in my life, and I owned quite a few books that I thought were outstanding, but equally quite a few that I was extremely disappointed with, and I'd spent my own hard-earned money on them. And I was always a mixture of gutted and almost angry, if I would buy a book to learn something or it had a chapter that I needed to learn the topic of that chapter and I would read the chapter and come out at the end and think I still don't understand it, what was a real bugbear of mine, if that translates, um, was a real pain point for me. So anything that I do now, I am super, I mean, I will go to extremes to make sure that I am explaining something as clearly as possible because the the absolute last thing that I want is somebody to take one of my courses or read one of my books and say, I still don't get it. Because I was so, that used to wind me up something rotten. I'm committed and passionate to never deliver something like that. And that's actually easier said than done because... You know, I, I won't ever call myself an expert in anything, but I've done containers and Kubernetes for a long time now. And you find that when you're explaining something, you automatically, you don't mean to do this, it's subconscious. You make assumptions that other people have fundamental groundwork knowledge that you have that they actually might not have. So I may record something, and when I'm listening back to it and doing the editing, at the end of the edit, I'll, I'll think, but what if they don't actually understand this other thing that's fundamental to it and I have to scratch it painful as that is and go back and say 
I've got to redo it in a way that doesn't assume they already have knowledge of something else. Now, that's a fine line. Don't get me wrong. I have to assume that they know what a computer is, can use a mouse and a keyboard and, and certain fundamentals. But I, I draw the line um, very carefully so that I'm not assuming that people have like, you know, 10 years experience already with Linux or something. But I'm waffling. No, 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 no. That's no. I, I'm I'm very much on board with you. Um, you're reminding me of the, not the at the book level. I mean, it, it applies at the book level, but it also applies at the kind of message board level. And there's this certain kind of person where oh, someone yeah. goes, someone like this. This I, I showed at the computer when I see this kind of thing where someone goes, "How do I do some? How do I do X?" And someone goes, "Well, you just need to drink the shizzle." Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> asshole. you know when you say that that the like it's anyway people are often like it's often not neglect it's often often deliberate which is one of the perverse things about about this kind of thing but i'm i'm quite passionate about that kind of thing myself like you know just don't be an asshole uh you know be clear explain everything of course there's a certain level beyond which you can't go like how do you what what's a left click what's a right click things Uh like that uh but um uh you know, explain things clearly if you're going to explain them at all. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just, uh, just my second last sort of question is um, related to that, actually. So uh, uh, conventionally, people often think of like a self-published book is actually one that's probably going to be lower quality uh, than a book that's published by a conventional publisher. And so you had your data, your first book was data storage networking with a conventional right. publisher where you had that very stressful year um, uh, or time. Uh, but your Docker deep dive book and your Kubernetes book were both self-published. Uh, why did you, I mean, obviously you could have probably had any publisher, any tech publisher take you up uh, with a contract and have thrown editors and stuff like that at you. Why did you decide to self-publish these books? Yeah. So um, no disrespect to any traditional publisher. Um, but I vowed after that book that while I was proud to have my name against a book, and it has been um, influential in my career, that I would never write a book again via a conventional publisher. Um, So I just went to the, I wanted to write a book on Docker. I don't know, there was maybe one other Docker book at the time. Um, So I reached out on social media to see where would be a good place to do a self-publish. Somebody pointed me at LeanPub and I sailed into the distance and lived happily ever after. No, um, <laughs> but, but it, it kind of was that, um, that it provided a way for me to give something to the community. I will say writing tech books, my experience is you will not retire early off of the money. That's for sure. Um, it, it's almost the amount of time I put in, it feels like I'm doing it for charitable reasons sometimes almost. Um, but the engagement that you get with the community and with your readers it is is beautiful at times, if that doesn't sound too cheesy. Um, so, yeah, I vowed that I would never do a, um, a published virus standard publisher again. Publish Docker Deep Dive via LeanPub. I do self-publish paperback versions of both my books on Amazon now. I have had several publishing companies come and ask to buy the rights of both books from me. And um, I will go to my grave fighting for those books and will never sell them to anybody. Um, Just because while I might get an upfront payment from that and it might validate the book in some people's eyes because it has a 
I'm, I'm giving quote marks here, air quotes, right? A quote unquote real publisher behind it. Um, I will lose that in my world, right? The book will lose its authenticity because right now I have the freedom to correct any mistakes or oversights or add clarifications like we were just talking about that, right? As and when I want few mouse clicks, right? After half an hour's work, boom, it's republished. Um, I can update it as often as I want. It's effectively, it's my, I'll, I'll say this, right? It's my book. When I publish via Lean Pub and um, Kindle paperback on demand publishing, it's mine, right? Whereas as soon as I sign over the rights to it to another company, not only is the process just way more horrible and restrictive and the book would lose its soul, it wouldn't be mine anymore. So for those reasons, I love the self-publishing route. And, you know, as long as things stay the same financially and I'm able to keep my head above water, I would never sell the rights to those books. Uh, the last question I always like to ask Lean Pub authors when they're uh, on the podcast is um, if there was any one thing you could uh, command us to build for you a feature or something you could command us to fix for you. Can you think of anything you would ask us to do? Uh, on the lean pub side of things. Yeah. Um, I, so, so I used to have to do quite a lot of work taking a PDF and making it um, workable for Amazon self-publishing paperbacks. But you now have, and have had for quite a while, actually the print ready version, I think. But I would say that I still have to go in and add some, add and remove some of the front matter content in that side of things. So if there was a way for me to be able to via the normal lean pub publishing route that I take to not have to go in and manually add like an intro page and an about the author's page and stuff like that, um, or, or to make that simpler, I'm not sure how you would do that, but then again, it's not my job to know that back end. That would be the one thing. But honestly, like aside from that, I, I really probably am struggling um, because I mean, I've been doing it for quite a few years now. So I've got the sort of publishing process, you know, pushing updates to LeanPub, of course, couldn't be easier. I do do the paperback self-publishing on Amazon as well. That takes a little bit more effort. But with the print-ready versions, it's way less effort than it used to be. I don't have to try and left-right margin align and num page numbering. That's all done for me. So thank you for that. Yeah, that that's it really. Well, thanks thanks for sharing that. I, I should I should say that we do we do have a print-ready PDF output uh, option for all EMPUB books, um, uh, and um, it is the way it is because authors have reached out to us and said, "Hey, we need this left-right page numbering." We need this. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, both both to you and to anyone listening, if there's anything that, if you're interacting with a sort of like major print-on-demand service uh, that has requirements that we don't currently provide, please reach out to us and ask us for them. We might not be able to do it right now. We might not be able to do it ever, but we won't do it if we don't know that it's out there as a yeah. requirement. So uh, sharing all that stuff with us is like one of... I mean, I always like to say like one of the reasons in, insofar as LeanPub is a, is a good service for authors, it's because authors, we've got the best authors in the world, right? And they, they with respect to developing products, because so many of them are product developers and programmers mm. themselves. So they understand how to communicate their requirements to us. Uh, so we're very lucky. We're very fortunate in that way. And so if you have any requirements or anything like that, 
if you're a lean pup author, please just reach out. Um, uh, it might not happen, but it might, it might also happen. And uh, that's one of the reasons we like to ask this question at the end of every right. interview. Yeah. Um, uh, so, well, Nigel, uh, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day uh, to, to talk to us um, and uh, for using LeanPub as a platform to uh, publish your books. We really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for creating the platform. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.